0: Wherever you are this morning, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and by your heart in humility before our God as we read Scripture and pray together. Oh, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless Hashem, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits. He pardons all your iniquities. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. The Lord has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness towards those who fear Him as far as the east is from the west. So far has He removed our transgressions Holy Father, we thank you that just as a father has compassion on his children, you have compassion on those who fear you. You know our frame, you know we're we're but dust, and yet in your mercy and the deadness of our sin, when we could do nothing on our own, you sent, just as you promised, the Spirit to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment. he unstopped deaf ears and opened up blind eyes, spiritually speaking, that we might see the light of the glory of the gospel and believe. Thank you that you've planted us on solid ground. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that the plans you have for us are good and acceptable and perfect. And we ask this morning as we present ourselves to you as living in holy sacrifices that our minds might be further renewed that we might test and prove your will as something that is good and acceptable and perfect holy spirit i ask that your convicting ministry would be not just here and in the auditoriums where folks are meeting but those who are live streaming with us even in other countries of the world that those who have never met you would find you thank you for the testimony i heard this week of a woman in Costa Rica who called upon you in faith may you bring multiplied decisions for your glory and honor and those who have met you may we grow more fully into the likeness of Jesus Christ we ask it in his holy name amen i want to invite you this morning to take your bible and turn to the book of romans chapter 12 For the next two, possibly three weeks, I want to speak on the subject of finding your spiritual gift. Now, there are a number of passages that we're going to be exploring today and in the weeks ahead, but I want to use as our central text Romans chapter 12. When you think about this subject of spiritual gifts, you will see that there are numerous verses scattered all the way through the New Testament, but there are four central passages that deal with the subject of spiritual gifts. And this is one of them, Romans 12. Now, today we're just going to look at two verses, but what is unfortunate that often Romans 12, 1 and 2, is divorced from its context. The context deals with the subject of spiritual gifts. And so before Paul deals and in, uh, launches into a detailed explanation on this subject of spiritual gifts, he first speaks about the need to find God's will. Because you see, it is only as we find the will of God and do the will of God that we grow. As we obey what we know, we grow. And as we mature, we discover how God has spiritually gifted us to serve Him And his people. Think of it this way think of a brand new newborn baby, just a few hours old, and you hold that child in your hands, and you think, what will this child be like? Will this child be athletically gifted, mechanically inclined, musically talented? You don't know until the child grows and matures. Well, really, we are no different at spiritual birth, at physical birth. God has put into your physical DNA all the equipment that you need to live this life for Him. He has gifted you and allowed some of you to acquire certain skills that you might not naturally have. But at spiritual birth, on the day God caused you to be born from above, He gave each one of us a special ability in which to serve Him and the body of Christ. But it's not until we grow and mature that that gift will manifest itself. Many a Christian has taken one spiritual gift's inventory or another, and they don't seem to really score distinctly in any particular area. And most of the time, it's because they're either new Christians and they haven't had a chance to grow, and so they don't really know how God has gifted them any more than you know what natural talents that newborn baby has, or they've been Christians for decades, and have never matured. And so they don't really know what their spiritual gift is. And so finding your spiritual gift, Paul starts with experiencing the will of God. And he explains to us some of the characteristics of God's will and why it is that we should want it more than anything else. Now, I want to begin. I just want to read the first two verses. I hope you brought a Bible with you. If you don't own a Bible, you might want to come to meet the pastor on Thursday evening. You'll be given one, a beautiful Bible. But I preach from the Word of God, and you may have one of those electronic jobbies, and I have those too. But I promise you, if you have a paper edition, you'll get much, much, much more. Trust me, having had an electronic Bible for 40 years, one of the very first ones ever produced. I was a tester for What's today is called Lagos. myself and 25 other men were asked to test this program. So I've had one for decades, but I can promise you, you need a paper copy of Scripture to really implant some of these truths into your head. Romans 12, 1 and 2, let's read it. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed... By the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. When I was growing up in New England, every Sunday the New York Times would come to our front door, and my dad would always take out the New York Times book review section where they had one of the most sophisticated crossword puzzles they say in the world. He called it brain exercise. He used to often tell me in his 80s, he said, just like you need to exercise your body physically because you lose muscle mass with every decade that goes by, you need to develop what he called the frontal lobes, the gray matter of your brain. You need to exercise your mind. And, of course, for those of you who are crossword puzzle people, you know that this is indeed, they say, the most challenging crossword puzzle published each week across the world. A few years before he died, I, I picked up his crossword puzzle that he had been working on, and I couldn't believe some of the most obscure words that were there. I thought, how do you come up with these, Dad? I mean, I would have to go to an unabridged dictionary to find some of these words. And he said the key to completing a crossword puzzle is to work it both vertically and horizontally. You cannot effectively work a crossword puzzle in just one direction. You must work it in both directions. And I thought about that as it relates to the Christian life. You cannot effectively live the Christian life unless you live it vertically with the Lord and horizontally with the people of God. And that's why most of the Apostle Paul's epistles are constructed the way they are. First, he deals vertically with who God is and what God has done, and then he moves horizontally in terms of the implications that it has. And so, in chapters 1 through 11, he deals with doctrine. In chapters 12 through 16, he deals with uh, application. So, he moves from salvation To service. And this is typically how all of Paul's letters are constructed, because what you believe should always influence how you behave. And so he's going to move from orthodoxy to orthopraxy, from doctrine to duty, from principle to practice. Now, many times Christians want to speak of the great doctrinal truths of 1 through 11, and we should. But that's as far as they go. They never get into the applicational section. Let me ask a question. If God were to look down on the people of Community Bible Church, wherever we are meeting, and most of us are not here physically, we're online, what is it that would excite God Almighty? What would make him smile? towards the people of Community Bible Church. I can promise you it's not the fancy building or the electronics or the nice uh, furniture that we sit in. All those things have their place. But if we want to please God, then we must please Him in our worship as living sacrifices, as we worship Him and as we serve His people. And so as a living sacrifice, we express our service in two ways that are repeatedly underscored in the Bible. One is in serving the lost by sharing the gospel with them, and the other is serving the saved by using that unique ability, that special ability that God gave you. Now, we may have the same gift, but there's one that God has given to you as each one has received a special gift. Peter says, employ it in serving one another. God wants you to serve his people. It's the Lord Jesus who said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He could have demanded service, but he took on our humanity to serve us. And that's what he asks us to do. Whoever wishes to be great among you must be your diaconess, your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be your doulos, your bond slave. And so, God wants us to serve one another and remember that principle that comes from Matthew 25 in the context he's dealing with how people will treat the people of Israel during the time of the tribulation. But the principle applies today that whatever you do to the least of these, my brethren, you do to me. And so this morning, if you have an outline and if you are online, there's a place every week for you to print out the entire bulletin with all the announcements, everything. I want to encourage you to do that, especially if you are a member, but there's a note-taking outline in that bulletin, and if you have it in your hands this morning, you can see there are three aspects to finding the will of God for our lives, and in so doing, finding your spiritual gift, and that's the topic that's at hand. Number one on your outline, finding your spiritual gift involves a presentation. It involves a presentation. Look now, if you will, again at verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present. There's your presentation. To present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Now, of course, whenever you see the word therefore, I've encouraged you to ask, what is the word therefore, therefore? Whenever Paul uses the word therefore, it's either to make a specific point of application, or to give a summary application pointing back to the discussion that he had previously made. And this is one of three major therefores in the book of Romans. The first one is found in Romans 5 and in verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. This is the therefore of justification, the therefore of salvation. The second major, therefore, is found in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the therefore of our security, of assurance of our salvation. And now when we come to Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, this is the therefore of our dedication. Dedication. And with an urgent plea, notice what he does not say. He doesn't say, now listen, in light of all that I've taught you in these 11 chapters, I think it would be a terrific idea for you to try to live for Christ. Nor does he say, I have a suggestion for you. This would be a nice thing to do. No, with apostolic authority, therefore, I urge you, brethren, notice, in light of the mercies of God. Now, please note, he does not say the mercy of God There are some translations that put it in the singular because they're paraphrastic and trying to make it more readable, but it's plural in the Greek New Testament as expressed here in the New American Standard by the mercies plural. He's not referring to a singular mercy, but to multiplied mercies that he has spent 11 chapters delineating for us. And if you're not sure what those are, you might want to pick up the book of Romans this week. And just read the first 11 chapters and just make a list of the mercies of God. It's really a powerful exercise. He's saying, therefore, on the basis of everything that I've taken 11 chapters to explain to you, on the basis of all that you've learned about God, here is how you are to live for God. Therefore, I urge you, brethren. You see that word urge? Parakaleo, it's not an easy word. To translate with a single English word. Sometimes a Greek word is like a diamond. You can turn it this way and this way, and there are various facets to it. And in a literal translation, typically you're trying to do a word-for-word correspondence from the original. But you could translate it like the ESV where it says, I appeal to you. The Net Bible says, I exhort you The New King James says, I beseech you. Another translation says, I plead with you. Another translation says, even I beg you. And so the picture is of the Spirit of God through the quill of the Apostle Paul appealing, beseeching, pleading that you offer yourself as a living sacrifice to him. In view of all of the multiplied mercies of God, that is the appeal in which is being made. And the appeal is not just being made to anyone But to brothers, now contrary to popular liberal theology and now the new social justice movement that has nothing to do with social justice as biblically defined, both of these movements affirm what we call the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. But the Bible is very clear that God is not everyone's father. Jesus said to unbelievers in his day, you are of your father the devil. The Scripture is clear. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. That we should be called because we weren't before. As many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become because they weren't before children of God. Now, this term, brothers, is a generic term, and I know more and more because people want to be politically correct. They take singular pronouns, he, like we use in English. Traditionally, we use the pronoun he to refer sometimes to both male and female in the context of our speech. And now we have translations of the Bible that take a singular pronoun, and they, and they translate it with a plural pronoun, they, because they want to be politically correct. But in so doing that, in many places, they actually change the meaning of the verse. But understand, most of you know that this term brothers is generic, brothers and sisters in Christ, those who have been born again. So this chapter is written to people who have already met Christ as their Savior, Listen, if you ask an unbeliever to apply chapter 12 and verse 1, or even to apply verse 20 of this chapter to feed his enemy and to show him kindness, he'll think that's crazy. Why? Because as Paul said, a natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. Apart from a birth from above, the unsaved person doesn't really have the equipment to embrace spiritual truth. So it's essential that you remember this truth. And let me say to parents, it's essential as you remember this truth in the raising of your children. Initially, you you train your child what to do, but your child is not like some dog. Oh yeah, I can train my dog to, to act this way and that's how I train my child. If that's what you do, you'll have a disaster. God calls you to train your child more than just the uh, pagan, psychological, behavioral modifications of our day, but to reach the child's heart, to introduce the child to Jesus Christ. And as the child moves into adolescence, those things that you train the child to do, when they want to begin to express their own will and their own desires and their own person, if they've not met Christ in a transformative way, through the mercies of God, then they're gonna do what they want to do and not what you want them to do. And so we are to be teaching and training our children on the mercies of God. That's why it would be a good thing to do this week. Just sit down and make a list of the mercies of God that he has shown you. And those would be good things to teach your children with. Now remember, this appeal is impossible for someone who's never met Christ. The unbeliever cannot present himself to God for a service where God says, that's acceptable. No, it's unacceptable. Only someone who is regenerated from above can truly serve the living Christ. That's why we don't let unbelievers serve in our church. And Christians who are unwilling to obey the biblical truth of becoming a member of a New Testament church, why would we want to bless their disobedience with the opportunity to serve? We won't. So he's writing to people, brethren, by the mercies of God that he has given as the incentive for us to ponder on, for us to contemplate as the basis for our service. So you need to ask yourself this morning, what motivates you to serve? Is it from a sense of obligation? Is it a form of bribery? Well, if I do this for God, then he'll do this for me. Is it out of guilt? Is it out of fear? If it is, then go back and study and read and meditate on the first 11 chapters of Romans. Paul wants us to realize that our service is not just some obligation done out of a bribe or guilt or fear, but it is based on the mercies of God. So finding your spiritual gift involves a presentation, and there are three aspects to the presentation that he underscores here for us. First, our presentation is voluntary. It is voluntary. God does not coerce the Christian and bridle him like a horse, forcing him to obey. But rather, God beseeches us. He appeals to us. He urges us in the basis of his kindness. God doesn't conscript you into his spiritual army. There are no draftees, only volunteers. And verse 1 implies that you can refuse. You might be thinking, but surely God can command us. Surely he can force us. But God doesn't want to force you. He doesn't want to force, he doesn't want a form of forced love any more than you want a a form of forced love shown to you. This is a choice, a day-by-day choice and responsibility that we must make. Now, in the Old Testament, the believer chose to bring a sacrifice to God. But under the New Covenant, the New Testament, the New Deal, the believer chooses to be the sacrifice to God. I like the parable of the farmer who went into his barn and asked the animals to contribute something for their breakfast. The hen clucked and said, well, that's a great idea. I'll offer a few eggs. The cow mooed and said, well, that's a great idea. I'll offer some milk. Then they looked at the oinkless pig. (laughs) Well, what are you going to offer? He says, it's easy for you to offer some milk or some eggs, but for me to offer the ham, it's total commitment. Well, we have chicken Christians today who want to offer just a few eggs, but not total commitment. And God wants from us everything. He's beseeching us. He is urging us. Christ said, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. But if our life is not daily, habitually on the altar, we'll never know that abundant life. He's pleading. He's calling out through the Spirit's inspiration to us. Now, you might be wondering why he says, present your bodies. Well, because in this life, our body is the instrument in which. Our soul and our spirit is housed. In the Old Testament, in in broad ways, God will often describe us in terms of body and soul. Sometimes Jesus, during the time that he ministered on the earth, would describe us in broad ways. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? He's talking about the spiritual dimension. But in a technical way, the New Testament is clear that we're not dichotomous, but what we call trichotomous. That is, we are made up of three parts, body, soul, and spirit. And if that's something you'd like to study, we have a course called Soteriology where we examine that in great detail. In other words, your body is what houses your soul. Typically, suke, we get our word psychology from it. It describes the mind, the will, and the emotions. An unsaved man has a soul. But when you're born again, your spirit is awakened. Your inner man, your new man is made alive. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but by grace, he made us alive. And so your body is a comprehensive term in the New Testament that describes your whole person, not just your, your skin and your bones. And so Paul has in mind when he asks us to present our bodies, to present everything, our mind our intellect, our emotions, our plans, our dreams, our desires, our our aspirations, our frustrations, our disappointments, our longings. I lay it on the altar, Lord. It is all yours. And no one can worship God in that way but you, just like no one can become a Christian for you. Only you can decide by the grace of God. Neither can anyone serve for you. Only you can personally serve. Now, before you maybe trusted Christ as your Savior, you used your body not for holy purposes but sinful purposes. Maybe you adulterated or prostituted your body. We've been watching on the news all these campuses that are closing, and all these young people just packed together, drinking, carousing. That's the generation that we live in, a generation that is characterized by immorality, Maybe you uh, drugged your body with alcohol and pills before you were born again. Maybe your tongue was used for swearing and cursing. Maybe your ears brought in ungodly music that you sang over and over and over again, and maybe your eyes were used to fill sensuality. Well, listen, if you've been saved... You're not to live that way anymore. Paul will say, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Therefore, you are to glorify God in your body. You present your body to God. It's a spiritual act of worship. I meet these Christians who sometimes come to church, and they appear to be very spiritual. They sing the hymns. They close their eyes. They raise their hands. Nothing wrong with that. I'm not against that to save the ladders, only to find out that that person is sleeping with their girlfriend or their boyfriend. They're not worshiping in the Spirit. They're worshiping in the flesh. And so understand, worship that pleases God involves the inward and the outward, the entire person. It's not some abstract, mystical kind of thing. It is to be done with what God has equipped us with. In Romans 3, Paul used a number of body parts to speak to the doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity does not say that man is as bad as he can be, but man is as bad off as he can be. It's not that a lost person can't do good, but he's not as good as he should be. And so Paul uses a number of passages from the Old Testament, which the Jew who would be listening, who thought they were righteous, they were condemned by the texts that he took right out of their Tanakh. And he reminds them with their tongues they kept deceiving, with their lips they could spread poison, with their mouths they were full of cursing and bitterness, that their feet were swift to shed blood, and their eyes turned from God. By contrast, Paul will say in Romans 6 that we're to use our bodies as instruments not of unrighteousness, but instruments of righteousness. Francis Havergill in 1874 wrote a great hymn that we sing often, sometimes as an invitational, sometimes as a prayer. She grew up in a pastor's home. As a young woman at the age of six found Christ as her Savior, and as a teenager She taught herself Greek and Hebrew so that she could do her devotionals in the original languages. She had been born again as a little girl, but in her mid-30s, she realized that there were some places in her heart and life that did not please God. So one day as she was reading this text, Romans 12 and verse 1, she wanted to go further in her surrender to the living God. She was meditating on this verse, and she realized there were some crevices and corners in her life that God didn't really have. She said, and I quote, I realize there must be full surrender before there can be real satisfaction. And so based on Romans 12:1, she wrote a hymn nearly 150 years ago that we still sing, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of Thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for Thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my King. Take myself and I will be ever only all for Thee, ever only all for Thee. That's the kind of voluntary presentation God is asking for, not just on Sundays. Take my lips, let them be filled with messages from Thee. Take my intellect, and use every power as thou shalt choose. take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart. It is thine own. it shall be thy royal throne. And by the way, you don't find a day of the week in Romans 12:1, nor do you find that you have to reach a particular level of maturity before you can make this kind of daily presentation. In fact, you won't mature unless you make this kind of ongoing presentation. And if you've been shown the mercies of God that has changed you from being an object of wrath to being a friend of God, if you have received the one who took the wrath that you deserve, then present yourself to Him. John will put it in these words, we love Him, why? Because He first loved us. So understand, first, this presentation is voluntary. Second, our presentation is sacrificial. It's sacrificial. Look again at verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Now, notice this word sacrifice is first modified by the word living, for we are to present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. Now, some expositors have placed a great emphasis on the aorist infinitive used here for present. And so they emphasize this once and for all crisis kind of decision. When I was growing up as a new Christian in the 70s, this was prevalent theology in evangelicalism, that you come to Christ and you receive Him as Savior, but at some point there's this total yielding to Him as Lord, as if you could dichotomize at the moment of conversion what Jesus did on the cross from who He is. Now, it is true that the heiress sometimes speaks of a once-and-for-all point-in-time decision, but the context must show that. Many times, the heiress is used, and it doesn't mean that at all. In Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. Does that mean we've just sinned just once? Of course not. Or in Matthew 15.32, when Jesus did the miracle of feeding thousands of people, it says they ate and were filled. Was that a once-and-for-act eating? Was that their last meal? Of course not. You don't have to know Greek most of the time to figure out the context of what God is unfolding for us. While there can be a crisis decision in our life, he is speaking here of an ongoing rededication and recommitment, a daily living kind of sacrifice. We must moment by moment present ourselves to God. And very often when people think of this word sacrifice, they don't always think of it in a biblical way. They think of the word in terms of giving up something that they would rather not give up. Well, that is certainly a partial description of the term sacrifice. But God is not simply asking you to give up something. He is asking you to do something. Usually when we read the word sacrifice in the Old Testament, we think death because the worshiper would come and bring a sacrificial animal to be slaughtered. And so you put something on the altar and the priest takes it and it is consumed. But since the once and for all sacrifice for all time has been made through the Messiah, we have no need for dead sacrifices. And so Paul is saying, I want you to be a living sacrifice, a moment-by-moment, daily kind of sacrifice. Christians often say, well, I'm willing to die for Jesus. Well, that's commendable, but how many people do you know in your life, however long it's been, that has literally actually died for Jesus? The fact is, in the history of the church, those who die for Jesus represent a minority of minorities amongst the vast number of true believers. No, God is underscoring here a living sacrifice. God has called you to live for Jesus. I had a professor in seminary, he's now in heaven, Dr. Howard Hendricks, and he used to often say to us, the problem with a living sacrifice is it likes to crawl off the altar. Look, when we face a difficult day, we need to look to God for His grace and His strength. If before this day is over, you are tempted with some sinful desire, you need to present yourself to God as a living sacrifice and say, no, no. When you are treated unfairly and unjustly, you are not to return evil for evil or insult for insult, but you die to yourself and you give a blessing instead. When there's a need in the body of Christ for someone to do good and you know you can do it, even though you don't feel like doing it, you die to yourself and you become a living sacrifice. When you're tempted to grumble and to complain, you must offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God, a sacrifice of praise, the writer of the Hebrews will say. Mom, when you've cleaned your home 10,000 times, and you don't feel like cleaning the house again, you recognize that because God is a God of order, you go ahead and do it as a living sacrifice. Dad, when you've worked hard all day long, you've put in a 10-, 12-hour day, you come home, your wife needs your help, your children need your attention. Doesn't matter how tired you are, you offer yourself as a living sacrifice. You have means to help some financial need in the body of Christ. You die to self and you give it to God, and He says it is a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice. Notice also that this word sacrifice is modified by the word holy, the adjective holy. Paul adds, Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Just as the old covenant believer could not bring some blemished animal to God. Paul says that we are to offer ourselves in purity and holiness, that we are to be pure people. Now, interestingly, this word holy, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, what we call the Septuagint, which is most often quoted when the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament, the word for holy is the word that's used to describe the holy place known as the holy of holies. That's the word Paul uses here. And in 1 Corinthians 3, do you not know that you are a temple of God, that the Spirit of God dwells in you? When he describes the temple of God that we are, he describes us as holy. It's the word hagios. In fact, sometimes it is translated in the New Testament as saint. The word saint is a title that God gives of every truly born-again people. It's not something that you become after you die. It's not something that is designated to you by some counsel. It is given to you while you are alive. And so Paul repeatedly opens his epistles with that greeting. For instance, in Colossians 1, he writes to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. In uh, Philippians 1.1, he writes to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. When he writes to the most inconsistent church in all the New Testament, the Corinthians, he describes them as those who are saints by calling. We are saints already. We have been set apart. We have been given by imputation the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is now saying, now that God has declared you to be a saint, live that way. God wants you and I to act like a saint, whether you're on the basketball court or in the boardroom or the squadron or the job site or the lunchroom or out on a date or on the campus or on the golf course. He doesn't want you to go carnal. He wants you to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. And please notice in verse 1, when you are both a living and a holy sacrifice, notice how God describes that kind of service. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present yourself a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. See that word acceptable? You could translate it as if you render it, the CSV and the Net Bible, as well-pleasing. In other words, God views... A living and holy sacrifice is well-pleasing. There he's speaking not just of your position, but of your experience, living out your sainthood. And so the totality of our life is to be seen as a holy sacrifice. Where are you this morning? Have you placed everything on the altar? Paul is saying, listen, brothers and sisters, because God has been so good to give you his best, You are to give your best. So the question is not, am I well pleased? The question is, is God well pleased? I mean, would a bride on the way to the marriage altar not fix her hair? Would she take that beautiful white garment and walk through mud puddles? Not on your life. And yet we are headed for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And some of us are walking through the slime of sin that this world offers, and Christ is not asking the believer, who will die for me? He is asking the believer, who will live for me? So our presentation is voluntary. Our presentation is living. Third, our presentation is reasonable. It's reasonable. Again, he says, present your bodies a holy and living sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. It is your spiritual service of worship to present yourself daily as a living and holy sacrifice. Now, this word spiritual is a challenging word for the translators. And again, there's not a single English word that can capture the nuance. Both the King James and the Ned Bible render it your reasonable, your reasonable service. Is the Greek word logikos. We get our word logical from it. The verse could literally be translated, your intelligent service, or as noted in the margin of the NAS- NASB here, your rational service. To put it in crass terms, Paul is saying, brethren, use your heads. The most rational thing that you can do in light of all that God has done for you, in light of God, all that God is doing for you, in light of all that God will do for you. When you consider his glory, his splendor, his grace, his mercy and love, that he has spent 11 chapters unfolding for us, then the most wisest, rational, logical, spiritual, reasonable thing you can do is to present yourself to God. Use your heads. There's nothing smarter, nothing wiser, nothing more intelligent than to do this and anything else is sheer foolishness. So what we have here are the mercies of God, and it's God's mercies that are to daily remind us that we are to be different. We owe God everything when we consider Golgotha and the wrath that the Son of God took upon Himself, when we think that He saved us, that He blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, We are to give him everything. Now, that's the first key term, the term presentation. If you're going to find your spiritual gift, it involves a presentation. Secondly, this morning, finding your spiritual gift, again, that's the context of these verses, demands a transformation. It demands a transformation. Three dimensions to this transformation are highlighted here in verse 2. As God gives a negative command, a positive command... And then he gives us a plan of action. First, I learn we are not to be molded. Negatively, we are not to be molded. Verse 2 reads, and do not be conformed to this world. Don't be conformed. You might want to underline or circle the word conformed here. Now, the verb conformed is in the passive voice. And when the passive voice is used in Greek, like it is in English, but learn grammar anymore typically. But there was a time when you learned grammar and you learned the role of the passive voice. The passive voice describes an outward force acting on someone. And so when we are conformed, it is because we are subjects of an outward force. And here, of course, he's referring to the world. In other words, don't be conformed by worldly values. The J.B. Phillips translation that was done in the 1950s, the very first Real paraphrase, translation ever done. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. In fact, you should know that the Apostle Paul not only used the passive voice, he uses a command, what we call the imperative. In other words, stop. Stop. It's a command. Stop letting the world conform you. It is as if you were saying to the church at Rome, to believers, don't let this world squeeze you, shape you. Now, remember, he's writing to saved people. Implication, it's possible for a saved, regenerated, born-again person to be shaped by this world. Now, of course, by the word world here, it's not a reference to the planet or the globe or a country or an empire, though it's used in that way in a number of places, both in and outside of the Bible. He's speaking of the world system. The God, small g, the God of this world, Paul says, is energizing the sons of disobedience. And so the devil is trying to shape the way we think. And the more godless a culture becomes, the more powerful that shaping is on the culture and the potential opportunity for the believer to shine brightly as lights or to be shaped by the darkness. So you can either conform to the world's mold or you can be transformed into God's mold. And as you study Scripture, you will see the world's mold usually expresses itself in one of four ways, fortune, fame, power, and pleasure. Fortune says get rich, get all you can as fast as you can, and then can it all up. That's what fortune says. Fame says make a name for yourself. Become well-known and then intimidate people by that, which leads to power. And power says take control over people. Use your influence to manipulate them. And pleasure simply says if it feels good, then do it. That's the world system. That's the world that we are living in. And as we move to the end of the age, the Bible is clear the world gets more worldly. The Scripture is clear I hope you're not discouraged by it. You shouldn't be. You should be awakened by it. There is coming a time when there will be no revival and no awakening. Yet people they claim Second Chronicles seven fourteen. This is what God said. We did for Israel at that point, and there are principles and aspects of application for us. But there is coming a time when there will be no revival. It will just get deeper and more profound, the sin nature as it is expressed through people. Yet we don't have to be influenced by the world. God has always had His remnant. We just studied the prophet Elijah. He had His remnant in a day of total apostasy in Israel's history. God had His remnant in Noah's day, where He was able to raise a godly generation in the midst of total wickedness. The coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah, days of lawlessness, violence, drunkenness, immorality. It will be like the days of Lot, days of sexual perversion, transgenderism, homosexuality, LGBTQIA+, whatever all that means. It will be days of apostasy in the church. We are seeing a growing apostasy So one leading Christian speaks of chryslam, like the Pope just did recently. There's no such thing as chryslam. There's one way to the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And any Muslim who does not confess Jesus as Lord, just like any so-called Christian who does not submit to Jesus as Lord, will never see the inside of the kingdom of God. Add to that, Israel is in the land, something God said He would do at the end of time. God is setting the stage. You almost have to be blind not to see what is going on. So last week, we had a big convention in America. We saw all these politicians espousing what God calls perversion. We have these politicians who are saying, we should defund the police. I thank God for police officers like up there in the top row. We don't need to defund the police in these days. We need if anything, underwrite them even more and support them. Yes, there is always some crooked cops, like there are crooked people, preachers and lawyers and doctors, but there are 800,000 police officers in America, and most of them are living a sacrificial life to protect you, and you don't want that to go away, I promise you. Do not be conformed, yes, to the spirit of this age. You don't want to simply follow the path of least resistance. We are to fight the good fight of faith. The Apostle Paul did not say that a true Christian can give up the faith, but a true Christian can stop fighting the good fight of faith. That's what Demas did, having loved this present world. He had forgotten the truth of Galatians 1, of Christ who gave himself for us so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Listen to what Paul said to the Colossians in Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men according to the elementary principles, the ABCs of the world, rather than according to Christ. Do never do not ever underestimate the power of the world system, the power of peer pressure. Don't overlook the weakness of your sinful fallen flesh and you need to prepare yourself and your children and your grandchildren for the awkwardness of being different. You better prepare them to say no. No to the secular pagan way of thinking, and yes to the spiritual mores of Scripture. And I'll tell you, they'll be standing alone, and it will be awkward, but God will reward them greatly in the kingdom. So the first word that you've underscored is conformed, teaching us that we're not to be molded. The second word you should circle or underline is the word transformed, We are to be remolded. We are to be remolded. Let's read further into verse 2. And do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed. Now, there's an alternative to being conformed, and it is that we can be transformed, assuming we've presented ourselves to God. And some of you, unfortunately, are not being transformed. You're stuck in the same old, same old because you've not made that presentation. There are some areas that you refuse to yield to the living God. Again, the Phillips captures it in its paraphrase, which is a commentary I recognize. Don't let the world squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within. Now, the word translated here, transformation, is the Greek word metamorpho. In, into our English language comes the word metamorphosis. And the Greek word means to change from one form into another form. And again, it's a command. It's a present imperative. You could write after each of these commands an exclamation point. He's saying, don't do that, but do this. Don't think this way. Think this way. Don't go on being conformed to the world. Be transformed. You say, what is metamorphosis? Well, we see illustrations of it, for instance, in the insect world where a caterpillar crawls into its chrysalis and he comes out a beautiful butterfly. What's the nature of a caterpillar? Its nature is that of a butterfly. But it has to go through a metamorphosis before it will be recognized as a butterfly. It's the same Greek word that's used of Christ when he meets Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration and Peter and James and John Watch, and he's transfigured. Same verb, metamorpho. Oh, his face, the Scripture said, shone like the sun, and his garments were as bright as white. Moses had a metamorphosis of sorts when he came down from the mountain after 40 days, and the Bible says the skin of his face shone. Likewise, Stephen, when he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he was preaching to his enemies who stoned him to death, the Scripture says his face shone like the face of an angel, speaks of his countenance. John will write this, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he, Jesus, appears, we will be like him. Why? Because we will see him as he is. Moses saw God. Face-to-face, the text says. Now, that's interesting. That's a common Bible question that comes up in the Bible line. How could he see his face? And over here, you can only see my back. That's not the focus of this sermon. But when he saw the living God, he was transformed. And someday you will see Christ. And in a split second, in the twinkling of an eye, you will be transformed. You will be made like Christ. To help my children understand this, when they were young, my wife would collect a certain weed, milkweed, and, and these uh, little eggs would be hatched on the milkweed, and they'd watch the eggs turn into uh, caterpillars, and then they'd watch the caterpillars eat, and the caterpillar would then weave itself into a chrysalis. And then on a number of occasions, we were fortunate to watch the chrysalis open up and turn into a beautiful monarch butterfly. And we have films of our children holding a monarch on their finger and one of my sons having it flap its wings while it's on its nose. Are you my mother? You know, kind of thing. And, And it was a beautiful metamorphosis. And she was teaching them a lesson about how God wants to do an internal change from the inside out. But some of us here, we have never really broken free of the cocoon we're in. We've stayed baby, immature Christians because the presentation we initially made, we've kind of compromised. You can't remember the last time, all by yourself without a preacher teaching, you spent time in the presence of God reading His Word. So the first word underlined was conformed, it's a negative command not to be molded. The second word you underlined was the word transformed, giving us a positive command, teaching us we are to be remolded. But the third word, which gives us a plan of action. The plan of action is that we are to be renewed. We are to be renewed. Would you please notice that Paul tells us how to break free of the cocoon, how to be transformed. He gives us not only a negative command, but a positive command. He gives us a plan or a path of action. Verse 2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, while Paul does not tell us in this text how our minds are renewed, elsewhere in his epistles, he tells us that the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to renew our minds. Certainly, regeneration is a work of the Spirit, just as there are two parents in physical birth, there are two parents in spiritual birth. The Spirit of God used the Word of God. You're born of the Spirit, you're born of the Word. Which is it? It's not an either or, it's a both and. You've been born born of perishable seed, but imperishable seed through the living and abiding Word of God. Likewise, you're sanctified by the Spirit, by the Word. Which is it? It's not an either or, it is a both and. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God To transform you. That's why at the end of his life, and he wants Timothy to leave with one thing, his son in the faith as a pastor, Timothy, preach the word. And that's what we need of pastors to do. They need to jettison the Bill Hybels, Rick Warren nonsense that has helped to destroy the body of Christ And they need to preach the word, verse by verse, word by word, because it is the word of God and not our fanciful ideas that God chooses to bless and to change and to refashion people. Paul, when he challenges the Colossians not to let the philosophies of the day shape them, then he says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom. That is, allow Christ's word to take up deep residency in your heart that you might Become wise, but listen, I can tell you right now that the transformation will not take place without the presentation. And if you're holding back and you've said no to God in certain areas of your real life, you're not going to progress. Now, again, if we are to find our spiritual gift, that's the context of Romans 12:1 and 2. So ever before he launches into all the details on spiritual gifts and how they function. He starts with the will of God because finding your spiritual gift involves a presentation. Finding your spiritual gift demands a transformation. Third and finally, finding your spiritual gift yields a realization, a realization. Let's read now all of verse two. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So negatively, don't be conformed. Positively, be transformed by the renewing of your mind in order what? In order that you may prove precisely what the nature of God's will is. The word prove is the Greek word "dokimazo." It means to be approved after testing. It was used of metals where they would take a metal, and they would uh, boil it at a high heat, and all the impurities would be skimmed off, and and it was dakimazo, it was approved. And when God speaks of a depraved mind, He he puts the prefix ah in front of it, ah-dakimazo. And He is giving our nation over to a depraved mind. So again, the Dems this week had some woman and she described herself with all these crazy terms as a male, as a female, and all that. That's a depraved mind. When a woman can look at her body and say she's a man, that's a reprobate mind. And when a culture says that kind of behavior is acceptable, that is a depraved mind. Oh, but wait a minute. We don't want to get too political here, Pastor. Look, if I were speaking to you about polyandry, having multiple wives, what would you think of? Of course, it just became legal in Somerville, Massachusetts. Will it go to the Supreme Court? I have no doubt. Look, if the Supreme Court can legitimize homosexuality, which used to be against the law in all 50 states, it will legitimize multiple marriages. It's just going to happen. You say, well, what about pedophiles? These men who want to have a relationship with children we will just keep lowering the age. You say, well, I find that disgusting. You used to find homosexuality disgusting. Listen to me. But you've gotten so shaped by the culture and because you know people, maybe even members of your family who've gone down that path, you just want to give up and say, it's okay. Someone asked me this week. They said, can my homosexual daughter... Be saved if she believes Christ. I said, yes, anyone can be saved, and we read 1 Corinthians 6, and such were some of you. But if she's saved, she'll change, and if she's not changed, it means she wasn't saved. But you see, we don't want to say that today. So we've got a leading Christian apologist who says it is okay to retain your same-sex attraction feelings, and you don't need to repent of it. Tim Keller is wrong. You need to repent of it just like a man who has heterosexual lust needs to repent of it. It all needs to be brought under the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. And so now one major evangelical denomination is studying this. What is there to study? Read your Bible. God is clear. Don't be conformed to this world, positively be transformed. Why? That you might Mazo, prove that God's will is three things. Notice, good, and acceptable, and perfect. And again, to arrive at the conclusion that God's will is good, meaning pure, acceptable, you might say pleasing, or perfect. Doesn't happen automatically. It requires the previous condition of not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the Word of God. And God's will, I hope you know it today, is three things. It is good, it is acceptable, and perfect. So number one there, A, you will discover that God's will is good. The will of God is described here as good. Why? Because God never asks you to do anything that's not good for you. And only a renewed mind can perceive God's will to be good. I think of Joseph, who was falsely accused of attempted rape, and he went to prison for it, but he walked with God because he believed God had a plan through it, and years later he will say to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The will of God is good, and only a renewed mind can perceive that. And if Satan will try to convince you of anything, he will say that God is ripping you off, that he is holding out, that his will is not good. Second, you will discover that God's will is acceptable. It is acceptable. This word in verse 2 can be rendered pleasing, as in the ESV, or well-pleasing, as in the Net Bible. In other words, the growing, maturing Christian will discover that God's will is well-pleasing. In Abraham, we, we find an example of someone who is able to embrace the will of God as good and acceptable and well-pleasing. He had to offer his son of promise, Isaac, on the altar. He was going to offer him as a burnt offering. And he believed that God, out of the ashes would raise up that boy, why? Because God promised to bless the nations of the world, not through Ishmael, but through Isaac, because Messiah would come through the lineage of Isaac. And he never asked, should I do this? He obeys, because he knows what God's will is, it is acceptable. Third, you will discover that God's will is perfect. It is perfect. Now, there are different words that are used in the New Testament that translate into English as perfect. There's a word that we get our word accurate from, not used here. There's another word that speaks of something that is like a perfect solution to a puzzle. But the word that he uses here is teleos. It means complete. It's used of the Lord Jesus. He was complete. He was not lacking in anything. He was absolutely holy and complete. And it is true sometimes that the will of God will lead you to places that you cannot seem to understand. But remember, God cannot lie. His will is true. It is perfect. It is acceptable. And you have to choose whether or not you will embrace it. Now, how are we going to apply this today? Let me make some applications as we close our time. Number one, the will of God is not a matter of revelation. It's a matter of resignation. The will of God... And as the context will bear out in finding your spiritual gift is not so much a matter of revelation as as it is resignation. It's not all all of a sudden no, there's a flash of light from heaven. That's not typically how you find God's will. It's not some sudden awareness. You obey what you know. And as you obey what you know, God begins to unfold that will. And as you're obeying what you know and you're submitting to the will of God, you know what? You grow, and that area in which God has gifted you will begin to show itself and manifest itself, and you will find a place in which to serve in the body of Christ. Second, the will of God is not found in a place. It is found in a person. It's not found in a place. It's found in a person. When we used to go on long car trips, we would play a game called I Spy, you know, the game. Well, the will of God is not like the game, I spy, where the angels are in heaven. Say, hey, you're getting closer. No, if anything, it's more like the game, follow the leader. And as you follow what you know, God begins to unfold His will for you. You see, what God is reminding us, as we'll see as we unfold this text and others with it, is that it's not simply a place to serve. That's not the emphasis of the text. The emphasis is not on serving. The emphasis is on someone. That someone is the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember years ago hearing of two young men who were both talented singers. One was a tenor, and he had a deep baritone voice, and, and he with this other gentleman would sing weekly on a Christian radio program. And they both felt called to use their gifts and abilities for the furtherance of the gospel. Then one day, both of these men were discovered by some secular talent scouts and were both offered some very lucrative contracts. One of the fellows signed the contract. And if I gave you his name today, you would never have heard of him. The other person said, I'm not going to sign that contract. God has called me to use my talent for the furtherance of the kingdom. His name is George Beverly Shea. And he sang with Dr. Billy Graham for decades. He sang until he was 104 years old. And he understood that the will of God was not simply found in a place, but in a person. And he dedicated himself as a young man to pursuing the will of God, and he came to know that it was good and acceptable and perfect. And of course, one of his signature songs that you would often hear him sing, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold, I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands, I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. I'd rather have Jesus than man's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name than to be the king of a vast domain or to be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Now, we've just cracked the door on the subject of spiritual gifts. But if you've trusted Christ, are you a growing Christian? Is everything on the altar this morning? If it's not, you'll either, A, never find your spiritual gift, and if it's not and you know your spiritual gift, you'll never be able to use it effectively. You say, I'm not even sure I'm saved. Well, then you're not. You can't have something as great as eternal life where the Spirit bears witness to your spirit that you're a child of God and not know it. You don't even have a spiritual gift, and God wants to give you one, but before He gives you that gift, He wants to give you a greater gift, and it's called the gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ. But you must be willing to change your mind about sin, that it's wrong, that it's evil, that it needs to be forgiven. And if you're willing to put your faith where God put your sin on the cross, He'll receive you today. And give you life eternal. Now, our Holy Father, helps someone today to do that. Someone who's listening in to the broadcast, maybe on one of our campuses in one of these auditoriums. Help someone in childlike faith to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Now, Father, I know most of those listening to me today have already made that decision. And yet you have called us as a continual reminder To present ourselves to you as a holy and living sacrifice. That's the function you set of the Lord's table. To be a forever reminder of what you've done and what you've called us to. So, Spirit of God, search us with King David. See if there be any hurtful way in us. Lead us in the way everlasting. Have full sway over all that we are. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.